From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, October 19th. I'm Marco Werman. A blast stuns downtown Beirut. A top Lebanese intelligence official is among the dead amid concerns that the conflict in Syria is spilling over. And later, in Libya, a reporter sits down for drinks with the prime suspect in the attack that killed the U.S. ambassador there. We sat outside on a patio. He ordered uh, some juice and ended up drinking a strawberry frap, and I had a, uh, a cappuccino. Plus, sheep strut their stuff on Senegalese TV and American pro wrestling in Cairo. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA, or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius waiting to be discovered? Find out on Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. A massive car bomb exploded in the center of Beirut today. At least eight people were killed and many more wounded. Among the dead is Lebanon's top intelligence chief, Wissam al-Hassan. Ben Gilbert is news editor of Al-Monitor. He's on the line with us from Beirut. Where did this happen, Ben? And just describe the scene. Uh, the explosion happened in um, the basically the, the the heart of the Christian neighborhood of Beirut called Ashrafia near um, Sassin Square. Um, it's a neighborhood of eight and nine story buildings. Um, this car bomb was on a tiny residential street behind the square. Um, the street was completely devastated. It's, it was a big bomb um, to assassinate one person. And, um, and it really caused a lot of damage in this area. Now, you said a big bomb to assassinate one person. That person would be Wissam al-Hassan. But is it certain that he was targeted and assassinated? It's, it would seem like quite a, uh, a stroke of, of bad luck on his part and, um, and terrible coincidence. Um, if he had if this was a random bombing that just that, that was meant to scare people or send us some kind of a message um, and just happened to kill the top intelligence official in Lebanon, I think um, it's pretty clear uh, he Lebanon went through a, a, a series of assassinations between 2004 and 2008 that killed people just like him, including one of his deputies, um, again a guy named Wissam, Wissam Eid, who was killed in January 2008. Um, it, it's and, also notable that uh, Wissam uh, al-Hassan was also allied with Rafiq Hariri, uh, the former prime minister of Lebanon, who was assassinated in a similar car bombing a number of years ago. Well, exactly. I mean, and this, this, he was his chief. Um, Wissam al-Hassan, the, the intelligence chief who was killed today, was his chief of protocol, his chief of security, was was the former prime minister's chief, chief of security. And um, he's been credited with um, having developed um, – and improved the investigation techniques that led to um, the, the indictment of four 
uh, Hezbollah members in that assassination of his former boss, uh, the former Prime Minister Rafi Kariri. What's notable about uh, today's event is that this car bombing comes as Lebanon is being drawn more and more into Syria's civil war. Is there speculation that today's bombing is somehow connected to Syria? Well, I mean, Lebanon and Syria are so closely related and interconnected. Um, as you know, Marco, the uh, the Syrians were blamed um, for killing Hariri, the Sunni community um, in Lebanon, of which Wissam al-Hassan is a part of and Rafi Hariri was the leader of. They still blame Syria for the assassination. The, Syri- the, the Sunni community here is also aligned and um, actively supporting uh, the uh, Syrian resistance against Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria. Then you have um, the guys who were indicted in Rafi Kariri's um, assassination. They are Hezbollah members. Hezbollah is allied with um, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Um, and there are accusations that say that Hezbollah fighters are even assisting the Syrian regime against the uh, against the the, um, the opposition in Syria. Mm. So I mean, the largely yeah. Sunni opposition, yeah, largely Sunni opposition, exactly. So I mean, it's very hard to draw that line. Where does Lebanon begin and Syria end? Um, ben, I'm looking at a, a Reuters dispatch that says Lebanese Sunni Muslims are taking to the streets, burning tires across the country in protest against killing of Wissam al Hassan. Uh, wh- where is all this headed? Perhaps in the future, people will look back on this as the day when the Syrian conflict came to downtown Beirut. Um, that's to be foreseen in the future, but uh, but it, it could appear that way at the moment. Ben Gilbert with Al Monitor in Beirut. Good to speak with you, Ben. Thanks. Thanks, Marco. This afternoon in Washington, the State Department condemned the bombing in Beirut. A spokesperson said the U.S. has no information about who carried out the attack, though. American investigators do have some ideas about who carried out a different attack, the one on Benghazi, Libya, last September 11th. That's when the U.S. ambassador to Libya and three other Americans were killed by militants who opened fire on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi. Among the prime suspects is Libyan militia leader named Ahmed Abu Katala. You'd think he'd be in hiding, but yesterday Katala was relaxing in a luxury Benghazi hotel, having drinks with two reporters. One of the journalists who met him is New York Times correspondent David Kirkpatrick. He met us at a rather stylish hotel by the standards of Benghazi, right near the Mediterranean. And we sat outside on a patio. He ordered uh, some juice and ended up drinking a strawberry frap. And I had a, uh, a cappuccino. Wow. Who is Abu Katala? He is a mechanic by trade and an Islamist who spent 10 years uh, in jail for his religious and political convictions under Colonel Qaddafi. He fought in the uprising against Colonel Qaddafi, and after that uh, has been associated with a kind of allied group here known as Ansar al-Sharia. Of course, what we're all interested in right now is that witnesses uh, have told us and have told the U.S. government that they've seen him uh, leading fighters in the attack on the American diplomatic mission here that killed Ambassador Christopher Stevens. Has the FBI questioned him? The FBI has not questioned him, and he says no one has questioned him. He is at large and at ease and comfortable here in Benghazi. Why has nobody questioned him? Who is it who would come to his door and take him to the station uh, for questioning? The other big militias around here who usually do the work of the government have declined, requiring more evidence. And I think what we're seeing is some reluctance on their part to turn on a neighbor uh, and a former comrade from the front lines. 
So it's kind of a complicated narrative uh, that you recount in your story of what Abu Qatala was doing on the night of September 11th uh, when the U.S. consulate in Benghazi was attacked. Can you sum up for us just what is known right now about his relationship to the attack? The way he tells it, he showed up after the shooting had started, after what began as a peaceful protest against this American-made video, online video mocking the Prophet Muhammad, uh, had started to get out of hand. And in in his account, it got out of hand mainly because guards uh, inside the compound were shooting out at the demonstrators. Also, in his account, uh, he then was trying to break up a traffic jam, fled the scene when militia were firing in the air and later entered the compound only to try to help uh, some Libyan guards who were stuck inside get out. None of this really holds up. We're pretty sure there was no peaceful protest. The shooting started from outside and virtually began with a rocket propelled grenade. And by the time he would have been back to rescue the Libyan guards, the compound was already on fire, which he says he doesn't remember. So his account of these events is not entirely persuasive. To me, the most striking thing about your account is the casualness with which this potentially dangerous person was just hanging out in Benghazi, still is. I'll admit that when I flew here uh, yesterday morning, I did not expect him to meet with me. I thought he would think better of it. I thought like a lot of Libyan Islamists, he would suspect that an American journalist was a spy. And a small part of me thought that if he did meet with me, he might want to take me as a hostage. But none of those things were true. The impunity with which he kind of is there in Benghazi and his red fez, I mean, isn't that just going to invite the heat on him? What heat? You know, I think there's a small group of American FBI agents huddled in the American embassy in Tripoli. But I don't think the FBI investigators have spent more than 12 hours in Benghazi because of how they view the safety situation here. Since you're there, what is the most worrying thing for you about which way Libya is headed right now? Well, this is a wonderful opportunity for me to say something that I haven't been able to say in the paper. And that is, when I'm here, the overwhelming sensation is, you know, it's not that bad. This is a country with no police, no military, effectively no government. And really, remarkably, uh, the people have organized themselves into local brigades, and they're doing a pretty darn good job of keeping the peace. I mean, the social fabric is holding together remarkably well. I sometimes wonder what it would be like in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, if all the police immediately vanished. Would we be able to uh, form up into local militias and brigades and, and keep the peace and police the streets at night? I'm not sure we would. And they're really in that light, doing quite okay here. You know, this group Ansar al-Sharia is for sure radical, and Mr. Abu Qatala is for sure radical, but among the Libyan militias, uh, he's really a minority. New York Times correspondent David Kirkpatrick speaking with us from Benghazi. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Meanwhile, in Egypt, a three-day smackdown is underway. Now, we're not talking about political unrest, the Arab Spring, or anything like that. We're talking about the surreal spectacle of American pro wrestling. Yeah, that's right. Surprisingly, the showmanship of World Wrestling Entertainment, or WWE, has quite a following in Egypt. And yesterday, a three-day WWE event began in Cairo, the first ever on Egyptian soil. One of those in the crowd was 17-year-old Hussein El-Khatatni. He went with half a dozen members of his family. Uh, Hussein, how long have you been a fan? I've been a fan since about I was um, six years old. Six years? You've been a fan for over 10 years? Yes, sir. And are you one of a few fans in Egypt or one of many? One of many. You know, uh, it's uh, actually an incredible amount of people actually came and support WWE. It wasn't a full house, but there are many, many fans of WWE in Egypt. It was very surprising. 
And so when you went to get your ticket, were you online with tons of people, like, fighting to get up to the box office? Uh, no, actually, one of my, my sister's fiancé, he actually uh, did a really cool move. He, he knew my brothers and I. We were huge fans, and he went himself and got us the tickets and surprised us with, with the tickets. We were, we were very surprised and very happy when he told us that he got us tickets and very excited. Wow, what a great gift. So you went with your brothers and sisters. How many women were there? It was mostly men. Right. It was way more men than uh, I was like, uh, I got to go in line with my sisters, and I went right away. And then there is a whole line of men that had to wait. There is definitely more men than women. Does Egypt have a culture of wrestling? Are there local forms of hand-to-hand combat, you know, not boxing, but some other kind of wrestling sport? Uh, Yes, definitely. We have wrestling, we have judo, we have karate, we have MMA. Right, so there's a way to kind of understand this American wrestling entertainment sports, which... A lot of people don't really consider sports. What do you consider it? It is definitely entertainment, but if you look at it, it's also a sport because they, it takes a lot of athleticism to do all the stunts they do, the flips, the top rope jumps, the the different the, like jumping off the ring, jumping in, and like being able to perform all the stunts takes, I think, would be a high level of athleticism. So, like, what happens when everybody got out of the arena? Was everybody kind of, like, jumping on each other? You know, kids love to imitate the, the wrestling moves. Oh, everyone was cheering. We were so, we were happy. Like, they jump on each other. It was, uh, it was really entertaining to watch. Sounds like it was everything you imagined it would be. Yes, because I've been, I've wait, actually, I've been waiting most, uh, most of my life to see WWE live. Like, when I was little, I wanted to go to the U.S. and WWE live for myself, but... My luck was that they came to me and I got to see them live, which actually made me very happy. Well, glad to hear your dream came true, Hussein. Hussein El Katatni, who went yeah. to Egypt's first WWE event held in Cairo last night. Good to speak with you, Hussein. Thanks. Good to speak with you, too. Championship-style wrestling in Egypt? I never would have guessed it. Mexico and Lucha Libre, I do know. So maybe you can feed us a few more stories about unlikely global venues for the scissor hold or the pile driver. Write us on our Facebook page. We are PRI's The World on Facebook. Or tweet us at PRI The World or tweet me. I tweet at Marco Werman. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Fifty years ago today was day four of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The narrative of the crisis is pretty familiar by now. The Soviet Union placed nuclear missiles in Cuba to counterbalance U.S. nukes deployed around the globe. The Kennedy administration found out and ordered Moscow to remove them. The ensuing standoff went on for 13 nail-biting days. In the end, the Russians blinked and removed the missiles. That's a standard short version, but as usual, there's more to it. A new project aims to bring out some of the deeper nuances of the story. It's called the Armageddon Letters, a reference to the correspondence between President Kennedy, Nikita Khrushchev, and Fidel Castro during the crisis. 
the project uses podcasts, blogs, a graphic novel, and animated short films to reach a younger, more gadget-obsessed crowd about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was Japanese filmmaker Koji Masutani's job to turn academic scholarship on the crisis into a graphic novel and animated short films. He says the project is designed to bridge a gap between young and old. I only turned 31 about a month ago, and it's only perhaps recently that I felt less unqualified or perhaps old enough to be able to engage and talk about the Cuban crisis, something that took place literally half a century ago now. And herein lies the problem. How do you reach out to these young people who ride around in skateboards with baggy pants? And how do you get them to be worried as much as we are about the danger of nuclear war? And that's something uh, beyond the Cuban crisis that we want to uh, bring attention to, especially now during a presidential election season. People are asking questions like, what kind of president should we have? Does temperament matter? And this whole theme of toughness in the American political landscape is uh, an ongoing presence. And what we're trying to contribute to people's thinking through the Armageddon letters is, well, what about other uh, aspects that don't involve toughness at all. Because in the Cuban Missile Crisis, if every leader, for instance, were tough, then we wouldn't be here talking today. Right. Well, temperament and where it comes from in an individual is part of what you're, you're digging through uh, with the Armageddon letters. So let's hear a bit of what you did. One of the coolest things was these animated shorts about each of the players in this crisis, Kennedy, Castro, and Khrushchev. Here's the beginning of one of these shorts called Be Castro, featuring James Blight, a scholar of the Cuban Missile Crisis. What's it like to think like Fidel Castro? Almost 22 years ago, I was at a conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia. One of the contributors to this was a high school classmate of Fidel Castro who told the following story to me. Fidel Castro invented a game at the Catholic high school, all boys high school where he went in Eastern Cuba. Find a bicycle establish some distance, a quarter mile maybe, between where the bicycle begins with a rider and a brick wall. The goal is to be the last person standing, bloodied, have to be bloodied, no blood, you can't win this game, but if you crash into the wall going full speed, are thrown over the handlebars of the bike, into the brick wall, and you get up, you go to the next round. A lot of people will stop. A lot of people will kind of sort of ease their way, slide into it. The person who is willing to sacrifice the most, who is willing to take it to the limit, maybe to die, I mean, in principle, smash his skull against a brick wall, that guy wins the game. This guy said Fidel Castro never lost this game. He refused to lose this game. He would go, he, he, if it was a tie, they had to go to overtime. They had to do it again. Over and over again, Fidel, undefeated, world champion, suicide bike driver. And then Blight concludes. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, Castro felt that Khrushchev did not have the courage to take it to the limit, take it all the way to nuclear war and to destroy the United States. Now, in the short B. Khrushchev, uh, scholar James Blight again, uh, who becomes actually an animated character in this one, argues that the former Russian leader approached the missile crisis with the earthiness of a Russian peasant. He was a man of the people in the best sense. He was highly voluble, he was creative and clever, but he was not educated. 
His father and grandfather were miners, coal miners and tin miners. The ugliest, most terrible job you can imagine. He worked in the mines as a young person. He called the mines my Cambridge, my Oxford, my Harvard. That's where he learned to be a man, he said. When you look at the correspondence between the three leaders mm. and when you sort of unpack the lines, read between the lines and analyze them, it's very interesting because Kennedy, uh, he's almost lawyerly. Castro, of course, is very um, emotional and passionate. Khrushchev, his letters are almost earthy in that they use a lot of analogies with farm life, in fact, agricultural life. So he talks about two blind moles who try to get by one another. Same with the analogy with two goats on the bridge that try to go by each other. And uh, goats can't swim, so if one of them fails, they will drown in the water. And he was referring to that as the headbutting between the U.S. and the Soviet Union itself. I was really interested in the main point of the B. Kennedy film, what Kennedy learned by serving in the South Pacific in World War II that informed him during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That massive, overwhelming power does not mean the enemy will capitulate is kind of the conclusion. Tell us about JFK's experience in the war that led him to that conclusion. Well, he was shipped off to the bloodiest zone of the war in the South Pacific. Kennedy was on a PT boat and they're going all over the islands. And what he picks up every day while he's in the Pacific is that even though the U.S. military had overwhelming military power, the Japanese simply refused to capitulate. And in fact, they would commit suicide. They would do everything they could to save themselves from being taken prisoner by the Americans. They jump on grenades and uh, blow themselves up. And in some cases, families would leap off cliffs to their death. And this was completely unnerving to Kennedy and to the Americans. And that experience informed him later in the Cuban Missile Crisis because when Curtis LeMay, the general, is telling Kennedy that the Russians will do nothing because they have a 17 to 1 advantage in terms of nuclear weapons over the Soviets, that the Russians will do nothing, Kennedy just doesn't believe him. Mm. And that is what starts the thinking about creating a quarantine or blockade. In every short film, B. Kennedy, Castro, and Khrushchev, that's how we're sort of peeling the onion for each leader in the crisis. We're trying to look at how their wartime experience and their experience growing up informs them in their decision-making in uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Koji Masutani is a filmmaker who produced the animated shorts and graphic novel for the Armageddon Letters. His earlier film, Virtual JFK, explored what might have happened if JFK had lived. Koji Masutani, thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for your time. We have those short animated films that Koji produced. They're pretty cool and enlightening. And you can find out more about the Armageddon Letters project at theworld.org. We've also added a web extra. Here, Koji Masutani described the old interpretation of how the Cuban Missile Crisis happened in three acts and then contrasts that with the latest interpretation based on declassified material also in three acts. That's all at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. It's almost World Series time for Major League Baseball. Did you know that some of those pros you're watching 
cut their teeth in Mexico's winter leagues? Being able to go in Mexico is like being able to practice on a major league field. You better get your A game on real quick or you're not going to be around very long. That story coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Pre-trial hearings continue today in Guantanamo in the case involving the alleged mastermind of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. But Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his four alleged co-conspirators did not appear in court this time. The judge presiding over the military tribunal had previously said they didn't have to. Reporter Arun Roth of our partner program Frontline on PBS is in Guantanamo covering the hearings. Arun, so what happened in court today without the defendants present? Well, they had picked up uh, in the middle of a discussion they left off yesterday about uh, dealing with uh, with witnesses. Basically, the defense is unhappy with the current situation where the the prosecution is essentially the gatekeeper on relevance for the witnesses, which they're saying they, they shouldn't be. It puts them in an unequal position. And that's because the, the, the government, the prosecution, is also in charge of determining, you know, what information is classified. So... The defense is arguing pretty convincingly that this puts them at at a distinct disadvantage because in terms of going into detail about the relevance of the witnesses, that in a sense they would be tipping their hand directly to the prosecution, directly to the people that they are fighting against in this adversarial process. Now, this also kind of feeds into some other complicated part of this hearing, how to classify Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Isn't he straight up an enemy combatant? Yeah, that is how he has been defined, yeah. And yet they are also calling him a participant in the CIA program. Yeah, that, that's one of the most peculiar uses of the term participant that I think any of us have, have heard here. One of the biggest issues here is whether or not the issue of the mistreatment of these men can come up in court. And the argument the government is using, and it's one that just amazes people, is that they are saying that because Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was a participant in the CIA program, meaning that they abused him, and therefore he can't talk about it, that basically he is essentially like a CIA employee and is you know, restricted by those rules. So how can he be an enemy combatant and a CIA employee at the same time? And the judge says the fact that uh, the defendants were tortured is not relevant. Right. Well, that's that question itself hasn't really been directly answered. So uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wasn't in court today, but he has been in court earlier this week. What have you seen? What, what has he said? Well, th- at first... Everyone here was struck by the fact that you recall when we talked in, in May during the arraignment, uh, a lot of people called it a circus. They disrupted the court multiple times. One of the defendants took off his shirt. They would interrupt. Uh, they stood up for unscheduled prayers. They were much better behaved this time around, and uh, it was noticeable. But then midway through the week, Khalid Mohammed asked for uh, the opportunity to say something to the court, and much to everyone's surprise, the, the judge allowed him, and he went on basically a diatribe for for several minutes. And he talked about when you remember the Thousands Guild on September 11th, that he wanted America also to remember what he called millions that Americans uh, had killed across the world. And that the president can take someone and throw him in the sea, which is clearly a reference to Osama bin Laden in the name of national security for the American citizens, meaning referring to those drone strikes in in Yemen this year. Mm. 
it was a pretty amazing moment that he was given free reign to do that. Afterwards, the judge said, you know, this is never going to happen again. Yeah, and pretty amazing that you were in the courtroom to see that happen. I mean, uh, I look on Twitter and it feels like you're the only journalist who's down there. How many journalists are covering this hearing? It, it's been kind of disturbing, Marco. I mean, we've all been commenting on, on this. There are 25 reporters down here, and actually a, a couple have, have already left around midweek. And this is compared to close to 60 back in May, you know, when they had people that, that were waiting to get in as well. Mm. When I was here in May, you know, it was much more of a big deal to, uh, to win the lottery to get into the, the courtroom gallery. And, and this time it was pretty much if you wanted to go, you could get in one way or the other. I know it's an election season, but... You know, let's face it, Guantanamo detainee policy, the military commissions, it's not an issue in the election. Nobody wants to debate it. And uh, I think people's attentions are, are, are just elsewhere. Arun, let me just ask you one more question. Um, it was announced today that uh, Major Nadal Hassan, who is on trial for his shooting rampage, must shave his beard before going into court. KSM, yeah. uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, has a big beard, uh, no problem with him in a courtroom or in a military tribunal uh, wearing a beard. Why the difference? The big difference is that uh, Major Hassan, he, he is in the, the army and he's being tried in a court-martial, so he's subject to their rules. I mean, he has to cut his facial hair and, and comply with uh, you know what the army says along those lines. Muhammad is an enemy combatant in a military commission, so he, he's in a different position. And also, one of the things that happened this week was that he was allowed, you know, obviously he has his, his full beard now, but he was also granted permission this week to wear uh, what he deems as his native attire, uh, meaning a camouflage vest that he, he's now uh, wearing proudly to, to court. Arun Roth with our partner program Frontline on PBS, speaking with us from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Thank you very much, Arun. Thanks, Marco. The fight against terrorism is one of the big foreign policy issues this presidential election year. We want to know what's important to you. What foreign policy questions do you have as we close in on Election Day? Post them at theworld.org or tweet them and use the hashtag TheWorldVotes. Well, it's not quite American Idol, but TV viewers in Senegal are riveted to Harbi. That means this sheep in the Wolof language. That's right. This wildly popular TV contest is not about who's got the best pipes, but about who's got the most beautiful ram. The show, now in its fourth season, runs several times a week in the months leading up to the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Kabir next Friday. The BBC's Maud Julien went behind the scenes in Dakar. Two hundred and fifteen sheep took part in Kharbi this year from all over the country. There were local contests first that were all broadcast on television, and now the seventeen winners are invited to the national finale. The jury uses a strict criteria to select the winner. The head of the jury, veterinary René Karim Jai, says beauty is hardly a subjective matter when it comes to sheep. We tried as much as we could to make the judging of beauty objective. For example, we look at the horns. We want symmetrical horns. We also look for a well-balanced face. We decided not to make the color of the sheep a criteria but instead we look for clean and shiny fur. And since it is a male contest, the testicles need to be the same size and symmetrical. 
The stakes are high for those who participate. The winner of Harbi can expect to have breeders from all over the country queuing up in front of their house with substantial offers either for the ram or for its offspring. Marianne Batili is the creator of Harbi. She says she was overwhelmed by the show's success very soon after it was launched. Oh, it's very popular. Even the first year we were surprised because I think it was really missing in the environment and uh, we are doing the competition uh, between the ram uh, that are alive of course and uh, we are also doing a, a cooking competition for women how to cook the ram. Now you may be wondering if any of the participants in the contests will be eaten during Aydel Kibir celebrations next Friday. Well, the answer is no. Abu Khan is one of the most famous breeders in Dakar. Every year, people flock to his stall to buy sheep for Aydel Kebir, or Tabaski, as it's called here. He's created a breed that's ideal for human consumption, and he also takes part in Harbi every year. But, he explains, not with the same sheep. The sheep which are presented at contests have particular characteristics, which is why they can be extremely expensive. But for a Tabaski sheep, what's important is the meat, People want good meat for the cheapest price possible. So we don't need the best breeds for that. The best breeds are too expensive. What I do is I take a male Ladoum, which is the best breed, and breed it with local inexpensive females. The creators of Kharbi are hoping that by raising breeding standards in Senegal, they're encouraging more young people to follow Abu Khan's lead. The country desperately needs more breeders. Every year it imports more than half of the sheep it eats during Aid celebrations. As for the show, its finale is on Saturday, and it should be watched, as usual, by record audiences. The BBC's Maud Julien there reporting from Dakar, Senegal. We've got our own version of Harbi. It's Sheep Idol at theworld.org today. That's right. You pick the best-looking sheep. And i got to tell you, I'm liking mellow yellow, quite rightly. Again, that's all at theworld.org. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for one of America's unsung baseball towns. Some 20 major and minor league players started out there, but it's not a big city. It doesn't even have a stadium or a professional team. What it does have, though, is proximity to one of Mexico's great baseball towns, Mexicali, which is just 20 miles south. Our mystery town is in the heart of California's Imperial Valley, and it's the home of San Francisco Giants relief pitcher Sergio Romo. Think quick. The answer's coming right at you. Okay, time's up. If you guessed Brawley, California, you'd be right. It's the birthplace, birthplace sorry, of San Francisco Giants pitcher Sergio Romo. His team is down 3-1 to one in the National League Championship Series against St. Louis. And tonight is Game 5. Now, Romo's been known to wear a T-shirt that reads, Made in the USA with Mexican Parts. That's an apt description for Brawley, California, because as Valerie Hamilton reports, the town's baseball claim to fame has a lot to do with its proximity to Mexico. In their Brawley, California living room, Frank and Leticia Romo watched the San Francisco Giants play the St. Louis Cardinals for the National League Championship. The whole family's here, except one. Their son, Sergio Romo, is a relief pitcher for the Giants and one of baseball's rising stars. 
He's far away in the major leagues, but in his hometown, they're watching his every move. Brawling may seem like an unlikely source for baseball heroes. It's just about 25,000 people, a farm town out in the desert scrubland of California's Imperial Valley. Unemployment is over 30%, some of the highest in the state. Main Street is a dusty arcade of shuttered stores. There's no big college, no stadium. The only nearby city is Mexicali, Mexico, 22 miles to the south. Brawley would be... Probably a slightly bigger version of Mayberry, although not quite as nice. But <laughs> Rudy Sinez retired from the major leagues in 2010. He grew up in Brawley, too. So did Alan Folks, who pitched in the 1980s. So did Sid Monhe, who pitched in the 70s. Tim Howard, uh, Steve Whitehead, Sergio's brother, uh, Andrew Romo. And another Brawley guy, and the Joey Imperial Romo. Valley around it have sent at least 21 baseball players to the major and minor leagues. And I think baseball... That's our way to get out of here. So how do we get out of here? By working hard. Pedro Carranza played pro ball for the Colorado Rockies. Now he's training Brawley's next generation of players at Brawley Union High School. Cameron, make sure you use two hands. Don't get lazy. Even mid-October, the desert climate isn't ideal for baseball practice. Uh, This is pretty cool, right? I think 95. (laughs) But in the winter, when Americans have packed away their bats and gloves, baseball in Mexico is still going strong. And that may be the secret to Brawley's success. Mexicali's winter leagues half an hour down the road are open to amateurs and pros. That means Brawley high school athletes can train across the border alongside professionals looking for a game. For instance, I was 16 and playing against men 30 years old, 35 years old. You're playing against some good ball players. Enrique Lechuga, who played with the White Sox, who's in the Mexican leagues right now. Julian Arbio also played with the Yankees. Same thing. They're playing in Mexicali you know, this week. And any one of my, my high school kids that if he plays down there is facing one of those guys. Rudy Sinez says it forces young players to step it up. Being able to go into Mexico is, is like, you know, that kid being able to practice on a, on a major league field. Um, you better get your A game on real quick or you're not going to be around very long. The tradition of Mexican-Americans playing baseball across the border here goes back generations, well before today's stars like Sergio Romo. There was a time where on Sundays the field workers here or their families would go down to Mexicali, watch the adult male play baseball, Sergio's grandfather played down in Mexicali. Sergio's dad played in Mexicali. Sergio played in Mexicali. You hear about some of the teammates saying, yeah, I played with your grandfather, I played with your uncle, or this or that or the other. And it's just like, wow, it's just like roots just spreading out all over the place. Those roots mean everything to Frank Romo, Sergio's dad. He came to Brawley from Mexico as a child and cut his own baseball career short to work the fields. His father before him had done the same. Diablos Rojos de Mexico, the professional team from Mexico City, they wanted to sign my dad, and my dad couldn't go either because they had a lot of work in the farm. I've been living dreams through my kids. In this small town, his son made that dream happen, playing baseball across the border and back again. Sergio's a major league baseball player. This is his fifth season. Can you believe that? It's uh, awesome. For the world, I'm Valerie Hamilton in Brawley, California. You can see what downtown Brawley is like and pictures of some of the youngsters there who are hoping to play in the majors one day. The slideshow is at theworld.org. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? 
Is it all in the DNA, or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius? Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Mexican tomato growers say they want to avoid a trade war with the United States. That's why they're offering to raise their minimum prices for export to the U.S. The U.S. Commerce Department is considering pulling the plug on a 16-year-old trade agreement regulating Mexican tomato imports. American tomato growers in Florida complain they can't compete with cheaper imports under the trade pact. All of this could have a big impact on consumers. According to the USDA, one in three tomatoes we consume here in the U.S. is imported and mostly from Mexico. Martin Ley represents a consortium of Mexican tomato growers and is a grower himself. He's in Washington, D.C. So American tomato growers have been complaining about the low cost of your Mexican imports for a long time. Why did your consortium wait until now to offer to raise your prices? Well, the reason why we are here in Washington, D.C. right now is because we have been uh, working with the Department of Commerce on the negotiation of an agreement that we has been in place for 16 years. This agreement was going to be ending at the end of this year, so we needed to negotiate this agreement anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, they claim that the agreement has not been good for them, but we have been proving year after year into the Department of Commerce and also to the U.S. industry that the agreement has been good for everybody. We have been able to provide a better tomato in the marketplace. We have been able to invest in new technologies that have made us better tomato growers and better use of technology has made us also much more efficient. What if the agreement is scrapped in Washington? What happens to your tomatoes from Mexico? Well, if the agreement is scrapped, what you will see immediately is you're going to see a a chill effect on the tomatoes that is coming from Mexico to the U.S., and that's going to be a big problem for the U.S. consumer. It's going to be a big problem for the U.S. economy, too, because on one hand, it has a major impact on the price of tomatoes. One of every two tomatoes are coming from Mexico, and if you take those tomatoes out of the marketplace, the prices will dramatically increase for the U.S. consumer. Second thing for the U.S. consumer is that it will take away a lot of the assortment of tomatoes that are right now in the store shelves because all the tomatoes that are vine-ripened and all the specialty tomatoes that are being consumed in the U.S. are coming from Mexico. Mm. But you're you're proposing raising the minimum price of the tomatoes from Mexico. So even if the agreement is renewed and everybody's happy, prices will still go up. No, not necessarily, because this is a minimum price. It's a floor price that is designed to prevent that when the markets drop, that the price of the tomatoes does not go to a level that could cause injury to the domestic industry. Martin Ley represents a consortium of Mexican tomato growers who are now offering to raise their prices to avoid a trade war with the United States. Martin, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much. We're pausing to remember Dutch actress Sylvia Christel. She died of cancer in Amsterdam this week. She was just 60. You may not know her name, but Sylvia Christel shot to fame with the 1974 erotic French film Emmanuel. It's the story of a wife of a French diplomat in Bangkok who begins a sexual journey with the encouragement of her husband, Jean. Here's a scene between Emmanuel and Jean where they discuss the idea that sexual pleasure may be the most important thing in love. J'ai l'impression qu'en amour, il doit y avoir quelque chose de de plus important, de plus intelligent que le savoir-faire. Je suis sûr que c'est dans le plaisir physique qu'il faut chercher. Emmanuel was one of the first erotic movies to be shown in mainstream cinemas. It played in a theater on the Champs-Élysées for more than a decade. 
After Emmanuel, Sylvia Christel went on to make films with some of the most prominent French directors of the time, such as Claude Chabrol and Roger Vadim. And she worked in Hollywood, too. But Emmanuel would remain Christel's most famous role. Juste Jacquin directed the film. He says it was difficult to make the movie because no one understood his idea of an erotic film. When I asked the French actresses to act in the movie, they said, oh, no, no way to do erotic film because at that time, it was in 1973, nobody uh, wanted to do a film like that. Let me ask you this. What was the censorship law that changed, that allowed for this film to be made in the first place? When the film was finished uh, one year later, it was forbidden in France for six months. And uh, because Pompidou died... That was President uh, Pompidou, yeah. Yes. At the, time. the president, uh, Giscard d'Estaing, say, I stop the censure and I give you the permission to, to the artists to do what they want. So after six months of, of fight, we opened the, the film in, in the theater because the pornographic film before was in the X theater. Right, a, a, X-rated we, theaters, yeah. Yes, and we refused with the producer to be opening in, in X theater. Well, tell me something, because I'm not quite sure I understand why it was so controversial in the first place. Was it because it was this erotic film that was really a mainstream film or because it, it had these kind of very explicit rape scenes in it? What, what was the controversy? The controversy, because at the time, the only thing that you can see, you watch, it was a pornographic film. They did want to do a distinction between eroticism and pornography. So we fight so much for explain to the people that Emmanuel was very soft erotic film. The controversy came from the feminists. It was the big time for feminists at that time. The controversy was there. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that women actually like this film. In fact, uh, Columbia Pictures, which picked up the film for the U.S. market, noticed that most of the film's audiences in French movie theaters were women. Yes. Well, let's hear uh, Columbia Pictures' trailer for Emmanuel, which was marketing the film in the United States. Columbia Pictures proudly presents Emmanuel. Emmanuel is sensual, but she's elegant. She's fantasy, but she's fun. Her extraordinary story allows all of us to look into the face of pure sensuality for perhaps the first time. Emmanuel. It's the first film of its kind that lets you feel good without feeling bad. So the last line there is just, uh, it's the first film of its kind that lets you feel good without feeling bad. What is your response to that line? It's fantastic because it's exactly what, what I want to say, meaning that eroticism is something beautiful. Emmanuel was a real story, a fantasy of a woman. And uh, why women like my films? Because I let the, the people put their own fantasy on the film. What do you remember fondly about Sylvia Christel? fantastic girl because you know when you try to do your first film and everybody around you tell you no way no way no way she trusts me and she stay with me she was a quiet person she was very intelligent she loved to read she loved to sing to to do poetry and you know it was like a sister Jules Jacquin director of Emmanuel and a longtime friend of Sylvia Christel its star thank you very much for speaking with us thank you so much 
We leave you today with the theme song from the 1974 film Emmanuel. You can see the erotically quaint American trailer for the movie at theworld.org. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. Melody de mon chante le cœur d'Emmanuel Qui bat cœur à corps perdu Melody de mon chante le corps d'Emmanuel The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.